The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is John Wareham. He is the author of How to Survive a Bullet to the Heart, Secret Lives and Uncensored Confessions of Maximum Security Prison Inmates. Uh, John is a best-selling author and a leadership consultant. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, John. A great joy to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. Well, okay, we're going to be talking about uh, actually how to survive a bullet to the heart that has to do with the recidivism rate uh, in our prisons today. And I just want to read some statistics because this is what your book is related to. Uh, the U.S. recidivism rate is approximately 44% and even higher in some states, according to a report by the Pew Center. Uh, the Justice Department statistics that report that more than 60% of prisoners are rearrested within three years of their release. Um, so that's really not a very good statistic, but in terms of your work and what you've done in prisons, uh, you have lowered that recidivism rate, which is what we're going to be discussing um, my first question, I guess, is how have you done it? You have a, a particular program, which is in its 18th year, as I understand, and this is what the book is about, called Taking Wings, which is aimed at keeping inmates from returning to prison. So how do you do it? Why is your program unique? And uh, where did this all come from? How did this... Uh, okay. How's that? For... <laughs> there's, uh, there's quite a few questions there. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> okay, first, I have been a lifetime coach to corporate CEOs, and I've helped some of the richest and most successful people in the world. Some years ago, 18 years ago or so, uh, my, my oldest son went to, uh, went to jail. He had a drug problem at the, at the time, and he finished up at Rikers Island. I went out there to visit him, and uh, someone knew who I was out there. They, they said, would I speak to the inmates in this particular program that they had? Would I give a short talk? And I said, yes, I would. And uh, they asked me back the next week. And to be quite honest, I've been going back every week, uh, well, almost every week. Well, they asked the question because, okay, obviously you went there. Your son is in Rikers Island because of his drug problem. But, John, they asked you to speak to the prisoners because you have, were such a successful, motivational uh, speaker in the corporate I, I had already written a couple of books uh, that were life-changing books, and I was known as a person that could speak to to a group and I, and I think they were just looking for someone to have a few words to say that might be helpful and so I spoke for on that day I spoke for half an hour or so and the inmates uh, liked the things I had to say and so they said would I come back next week I said sure I'll come back next week they said would you come back the week after I said yes they said would you come back forever I said I think I'm going to do that and they gave me the chance to create a program of my own. 
And uh, what, what I saw at that time was, I mean, I went out there and I didn't really understand anything much about prison inmates and, and recidivism rates. So for me, it was an opportunity to, to really try hard. I mean, I, I didn't just want to go out there and speak to these people. I wanted to change their lives in such a way that they would choose not to go back again. And so I, I went there with an open mind. And, and, and I still remember the day. There was one day that I gave them a, a subject to, to speak about. And, and that subject was the story of, of my life. It was just a day that we didn't have a speech and I didn't have anything to teach. And I said, okay, maybe we'll just do the story of your life and I'll get you to give a speech. And those speeches were so eye-opening for me I, I had they were horrendous one after another they well, were John, amazing I to interrupt you because I've had some experience as a social worker working in the prison right. system many many years ago and then 20 years ago in probation but I'm wondering because social workers go into these prison systems and and attempt to talk to prisoners to talk to them about their lives to tell their stories and yet we don't have that kind of success that you've had or that so can you how did that I'm uh, I was I went out there for a graduation and the wo- woman who ran the overall program introduced me to the commissioner there and she said this is John Wareham she said he has a gift she said he has a very special gift well I didn't know what I, I, I didn't have any idea what she would she, she would say she said his gift is that he he can speak to these inmates as if they were equals. So do you think that's the, one of the primary factors? Because <laughs> well, you put your well, I, I, what I think was, yeah. to me, I'm speaking to everyone the same. I wouldn't speak a, to a prison inmate any uh, differently than I would to you. So I, I, think, I think that the guys felt very quickly that I was at ease with them and that I wasn't trying to fool anybody, and that and that I had some ideas that I was going to share. So, but it it is true. On your first time there, somebody may want to give you a hard time, but since I was the national debating champion, I figured this is going to be an uneven fight. If you want to fight me with words. And so I, I was never concerned, and I always wanted to bring everyone on board. Okay, let, however, let me say, the thing that I did that was different, which I learned to do, that was different to everyone else, what does not work is if you stand before an audience and you tell them that they were bad people and they did a bad thing and you wag the finger and you say, don't do it again, right? <laughs> that won't ever work because we only ever pay attention to the things that we discover for ourselves. So my class was an exercise in bringing people to a deeper understanding of themselves than they'd ever had before. Carl Jung said that the patient only begins to get well when he first has an understanding of his predicament and then can see a way out of it. And most of the people in that in the prison class, I thought, did not have an understanding of the forces that brought them in. So I would say at the extreme outset, until you understand the forces that brought you in here, you will be coming back over and over again. So I want to I show you an understanding of, 
of the forces that have brought you here that you are not going to get any, anywhere else, and then you'll be able to see a way out of it. That's w- w- where I began, all right? That's where you began, and I'm, I'm picturing these prisoners, and I, my question is, like, where and what did each one, what was, what was the demographics, what, you know, different, uh, uh, obviously different things brought Okay, when in. I first went to Rikers, when I first went to Rikers, um, there was a program there called uh, Fresh Start within the Osborne uh, group. Uh, again, I, I ran my own program there, but it was still within this overarching thing, and they taught cooking and computers, and um, and I think they had a writing class as, as well. Uh, but what I wanted to do was teach philosophy and psychology and self-understanding and and self-help. The thing that I learned, the thing, the thing that really caught the attention of everybody, which I now do whenever I open up, I say, listen, I don't care what was the thing that you did that caused you to arrive here, because you made the only choice that was available to you 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 thought that you made a choice that you you thought that you made a choice to pull a gun or to beat somebody or to get into armed robbery but you that was the illusion of choice only because at that instant you could see you could see you were blind to any other option right so i'm going to begin from the fact that as of today, you are a victim and you are not a, a criminal. Now, quite a few guys in the class will argue at that point. I'll say, John, John, no, I made, a, I'm, I made the choice. I held the gun. I did that. I said, no, you, you think you did, but I want you to, for the next few weeks, I want you to suspend your disbelief, to suspend your disbelief, and I want you to listen to the ideas that we are going to share now and then at the end of the 13 weeks, you can tell me if I'm wrong or whatever, and you can go, go off on your own if you wish to at that point, or you can embrace the ideas that I'm offering you, okay? So, so that's, where, that's where I begin with them, and I now, at that point now, I give them a set of readings. I have them in a book. I have a book called How to Fly. It's a book of the biggest life-changing ideas that I've been able to collect in the course of my, of my own life. It's, it's ideas that I wish a person had put in my hand, ideas from, from, from Plato, from Freud, from Christ, from Buddha, from, from Sartre, from Aesop, from Malcolm X. And, and I, I've got that book and say, now, we're going to read these ideas. I want you to read them, and every week we'll, we will discuss them. And every week I'm, I'm going to get you to give a speech on a particular subject, on a particular part of the overarching framework that I have in place. And we, so I say that you can't, you can't read this book from the beginning to end. You, you can't dis, dis, discuss this, the, these, these ideas from the beginning to the end without ultimately being changed. So... They don't see the overarching framework. They just see week by week the things that we are going to discuss. And the ideas that I offer are confusing. They're ambiguous. They can be conflicting. My 
concern is to get some constructive confusion. I, I want to get everybody confused, okay? Because it's only after they become confused that we can extract some clarity. And so they, each, each week, we'll, we'll discuss these ideas, and some people will agree and some people won't. But the next week... The ideas sink in, and finally, after 13 weeks, they, they, they feel the power of the, overall, of the overall ideas that I have set in place. Every week, we have a, a, a discussion where, which I lead on these things. Every week, they give a speech, and then this week, the thing that I did that was uh, different with writers and poets uh, this year, actually, and and last year also, we, we added um, that in addition to uh, giving a speech on the subject, I asked them to write a poem. And that was, again, eye-opening because now they opened up in a way they would never have done with just a speech. They were able to reveal deep thoughts, profound ideas. They revealed what was going on in their hearts and they saw that I was only judging the poem. I was ne never judging the individual. So they were able to say things that, were, that would seem to be unacceptable. But when I heard those poems, I thought, this is amazing. They were so good, and the guys were, were so great. I thought, I could now restructure. I, I could fit their poems. I get them to write a poem every week on a subject that is of interest to me as much as them, which is a poem about the moment of my crime, the moment of my arrest, the moment I went before the judge, the moment they took me off to jail, the instant that I was there that, that evening, and then what it was like to do the time. And that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is where, where they enter my class and we now try to make sense of all these things that happen to them, right? That's so before what I'm doing. they enter the class, they have to have this kind of deep understanding, this kind of self-awareness or social awareness of of the issues no. surrounding. No, they can. No, they can. They can come to my class and they don't understand anything. As far as I'm, I mean, I mean to be fair, all of the guys that come to my class are smart. It's a. It's a it is a self-selecting class, and they come on their day off. They don't have to be in my class, right? It's not a requirement. They make a choice to yeah. be there. Yeah, I mean, this is their free day. So they choose to come to my class. Um, but when they come to my class, they haven't... They, no, when they come to my class, they don't know, they don't know anything about Plato or Freud or, or Adler or Aesop or Shakespeare. They, they've never any of that, but I'm going to introduce them to the biggest ideas from these people in a particular order, right? So that at the end, it's hard to avoid becoming an enlightened individual, I think, all right? That's what, that's what I'm doing anyway. All right, so that's basically, the, pro the, the as you've described it, that's basically the program, the Taking Wings program. But you get very specific in terms of uh, they have to have some understanding at some point, I guess, and this is part of the process of what the emotional damage that's happened to them. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, in within the framework, I, I say, okay, you you have been emotionally harmed because of the fact that you were harmed. You thought about the world in a in an 
unusual way which got you through your childhood, but now in adulthood becomes an imprisoning belief. And because you have an imprisoning belief, you engage in a self-defeating behavior. That, that's, what, that's what we lead to. Now, for sure, I introduced the idea of emotional harm because quite a few people will say that I, oh no, I, I was fine, my upbringing was okay, I, I got over it. But uh, I introduced it with a poem, and the poem is in the book. It's called, it's called Snakebite. Do you, do you have the book there? I do. Uh, I forget what page it's on. I could look if you'd like, if you'd like to read it. Um, it's, no, go it's ahead. A, just, you don't have to read it. Just, you know, just describe. I think that's more Well, Snakebite is... Um, it, the, the opening lines to it, as I remember, are a lash of brightness catches you off guard in childhood. It completes you. You change size and dreams of smelly water catch your eyes impersonating something bright and hard as sun and moon wear hot grooves in the, in the sky and you lurch toward conclusion. You, swollen and fly, must welcome turmoil as a central friend who plies her fangs of difference through your heart. Now you're anyone's to break apart. Now you're anyone's to bind and bend. And then the last two lines are, you will not understand but will endure snake bit and never dreaming of a cure alright those are the last two now I look at the audience and I, I look at the guys in the class and I say okay what is the poem about what is going on and, uh, and they'll say that they don't know and I say let's go back to the first line a lash of brightness catches you off guard in childhood some bad thing happens to you when you're growing up has anyone had that experience one by one, as they catch the idea, everybody understands that. Everybody's been, everyone in the, you can't be in jail and not have been harmed when you were growing up. That's what I have seen, okay? One way or another. So the idea of emotional harm, we deal with. And we discuss the poem, and the poem is very profound. And that word now, the word snakebite, goes into their vocabulary in a way that they'll never forget again. And it's easy to explain. It's easy to, to explain. It, it isn't like, I, like I, was, I was hurt. I got bitten by the snake. Everybody understands that, right? It's a big idea. Yes, you think so? Yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm also, as I'm listening to you talk, I mean, there's obviously some kind of a charismatic way that you have of getting this information from the prisoners. Do you think the success of your program not only has to do with the program itself, uh, and getting these prisoners to not wind up in prison again. And I want to talk specifically maybe about some of the statistics that you've garnered over the years. But it also has to do with your personality. I mean, can other people do this? Or is it just John Wareham who's able to kind of present this, this program uh, to the prisoners and, and be successful? Because obviously you have some kind of overriding connection. And, and I go back to the word charismatic way of doing this or presenting it. Um, well, I think to answer your question, I was very successful um, in recruiting guys from the class to go back and teach my class. Um, and there was one man in particular, Kenny Johnson, who was in my class the first time, the, the very first class that I ran. He was 45 years old. He weighed 300 pounds. He had his front teeth missing. He looked awful. His, his his skin was bad. He got turned down for the class, but somehow or other he found a way to get into it. And um, he showed up in my first class, and he was sort of... Uh, he, he had the gift of making himself invisible in, in the room. He could either stand back or he could step forward. He could be charismatic at will. And I think that was from his upbringing because he had been a 
cat burglar was his thing. Well, it's interesting anyway, that he we, weighed 300 pounds and he could become invisible. <laughs> yeah, well, he could sort of, he could step, he could be, I, I still remember we were, we were talking about Plato's cave and I asked a question and this, and this answer came from a corner of the room and it was a very profound answer. I said, who are you? He said, Kenny Johnson. I said, Kenny, and I looked at him. It's the first time I'd sort of seen him, you know. And I said, well, I think you and I are going to be friends because you're obviously, and he was the oldest guy in the room, you and I are going to try to help these young men here. Anyway, he, he got into an argument with me subsequently about re- religion, and he was saying religion was bad and this and that and the other. So I said, well, Ken, I'm not going to have that discussion with you now. Next week, we'll get the class to discuss existentialism. I will arrange to get you a reading from John Paul Sartre, and we'll give it to the class, and I'll come back next week, and we'll sit and we'll discuss existentialism, okay? Atheism, effectively. And so next week, I go back, and I said to the class, and, and I said to Ken, so what did we think of that? He said, well, he said, and he was angry now. He said, well, he says there's no God. I said, Ken, that's what he said, and that's what you say. It's, I heard you say it last week. Yes, well, he said, but he's got it written down. He's got it written down. <laughs> and I said, well, it's true. He said, but because he's got it written down, it makes it worth more, not less, right? So now let me ask you a question, Ken, all right? And he and I looked at him then. I said, Ken, let's assume that he's right and that you were right last week. If there's no God, what is there, Kenny? He looked at me, and, he, and the class looked, and he said, ah, oh, oh, there's us. I said, that's right, Kenny. There's you and me, and I'll be leaving here in an hour and a half, and, and you'll be on your own. Do you think that the President of the United States, do you think that he lies awake thinking, how can I make the life that... Kenny needs and wants? He said, no. I said, do you think the governor does? Do you think anybody does? No. Who's going to create for you then if there is no God, which is what you say. If there's no God, who will create for you the life that you want? I'm leaving. He looked at me. He said, I will. I will. Now, listen, that idea, that was one big idea from existentialism, and he took that idea. He lost all the weight. He got his teeth fixed. He went from looking like uh, looking an ugly guy, uh, looking a scary ugly guy, to looking like Sidney Poitier. And uh, a, I took him back to teach with me, and uh, trans- I still remember. Hmm? Trans- well, that's a 180 transformation. I, uh, before, but I also want to know, like, very specific, from a practical point of view, because you've been doing this for 18 years. So when we are really talking about, are you doing your work? At, where are you doing it now? I mean, you're going uh, around to the I'm different... At, uh, I'm, I'm working upstate prisons now. Uh, I, I was in uh, Wolkul. I ran a class up there. Uh, which I wish they'd filmed. Actually, it was it was an unbelievable class. The the greatest guys that ever showed up in that class. Uh, but how do you ran... measure? Okay, if you're doing this kind of a program, it would seem to me. I mean, our, all of our prisons are overcrowded. I mean, it's a huge problem. Uh, if you, your program, if if what are the statistics? Because wouldn't this be something that we would adopt, not just in New York State, but uh, in a uh, national level, if it if it works the way you say it works? Well. All I can say is that that I I would say the most important thing is that hardly anyone 
who has ever passed through my class has gone back, all right? I mean, since I go, after I, and you after I got afterwards? the format in place and everything, the people that have, that have been in my class, I don't know anyone that, that has actually gone back and I asked the guys and they don't either. Um, having said that, it is, to be fair, it's a self-selecting class and I'm speaking about the people who completed my class, okay? So, um, if they stick in there for the 13 weeks and, and they're there because they like it, they're there because they're paying attention, they're there because, and, and just let me say that for, for anyone who's a skeptic, read the book, read the book, How to Survive a Bullet to the Heart, because you see with your own eyes the transitions that these individuals are Making right from the first page. If you if you read from the first page to, to the last, you feel you feel the earth alter, right? You do I'm not feel sure whether that. you had that yeah. experience. I, hmm? I understand that, and I'm I'm trying to figure out as I'm listening to you how you can train. I mean, you're talking about a self-selective group of people. How you can translate that, perhaps in a more general sense, so that the. Um, well, you know, I've, I've had a lot of success as well dealing with CEOs and executives. And one of the executives that I, that, who was referred to me, he was earning 500000 He was working for a big, uh, a big famous co- company in Manhattan. Unbeknown to him, when they referred him to me, I was the last port of call. If I couldn't, if, if I couldn't get him to stop being so angry and to be shouting at everybody, even though he was brilliant, um, they were going to fire him within the week. And uh, he, anyway, to make a long story short, he, uh, he went back there. They said, John, this isn't the same person. <laughs> Whatever did you do? And I, I said, well, I'll give you the very short answer, is that, <clears throat> that I understood him. And he, and he saw that, again, with him, I went back to the poems, snake bite, okay? You're angry. You're not angry because of what's going on at work. You're angry because something else that happened in your life. Let's, let's go through this poem, snake bite. Let's talk about these things. Let, let me give you the framework for understanding what is the problem, all right? Now, he was a very smart guy, by the way, Oxford educated. And, uh, and so... Um, he got it very quickly. He went back. He said, he said, this is what he said. I'm just going to quote what he said now. He said to them that being with John for two hours, he said, I felt as if I'd been on, on vacation for a month, right? But that was, let me turn that off. That was, that was only because I understood him, I think. I, I, I understood clearly. I could see that. See, here's the thing. You said just before that I was a motivational speaker, speaker right? Speaker, yeah. Well, I'm not. I hate being called that. I hate. I say I don't want to motivate you because if I motivate you, then after I leave, what are you left with, right? You must look to me because motivation comes from the outside. I don't want to motivate you. I'm not interested. I want to liberate you. I want to give you some ideas that will change your life from the outside so that when I go away, you say, wow, those were great ideas that John was able to share with me and you'll have those ideas with you for the rest of your life. That's what I say. Okay, so I make the distinction between a motivational speaker who's going to manipulate you, who's going to play on your emotions, going to do all these things, and someone that will give you some real ideas that you can apply to change your life 
if that's what you wish. All right, so you have to incorporate it into who you are, as you say. It's not something that's external. You don't need that motivational speaker there all the time. Well, speaking of that, we have to say goodbye because we only have 30 seconds left. So, John, how to survive a bullet to the heart, secret lives, and uncensored confessions of maximum security prison inmates. Uh, get, you can get the book online, bookstores everywhere, obviously, and just give us a website, and then we will say goodbye. Uh, EaglesGather.org. That's E-A-G-L-E-S, gather, G-A-T-H-E-R.org. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. You are, a great were, joy. Thank you so yes, much. Thank you. We are going to take a short break right, right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning, my next guest is Sonia Rhodes, Ph.D., author of The Alpha Woman Meets Her Match, How Today's Strong Women Can Find Love and Happiness Without Settling. Uh, Dr. Rhodes has been practicing for 30 years as a relationship expert and a psychotherapist. Uh, She's worked with individuals and couples in her New York City private practice, but increasingly as I understand it, over the course of the last decade, Dr. Rhodes has seen increasing numbers of self-confident, assertive women who share a common problem. They are frustrated by a lack of success in relationships. So I think that's a good sort of piece to bring you in on, uh, Dr. Rhodes. Uh, this is, you say, over the past decade, this has been a problem because of all these... Right. I think, you know, because of all the changes in the social and economic environment, I mean, if you think about it, 45% of household income is contributed by women. In 97% of the cities in the United States, 
and that is across the United States, not just on the West and the East Coast. Single, college-educated women under the age of 30 are not only closing the wage gap, they're making more money than men. And more women are graduating from college and graduate school than men. So this is the social landscape in which the alpha woman has come into her own. There are generations now of several generations of alpha women who are strong, confident, assertive women who are natural-born leaders. And these alpha women have incorporated into their personalities what we have formerly considered to be masculine traits, being bold, dominant, decisive. Actually, these are gender-neutral traits, although we have associated them with men in the past. What is most significant about the alpha woman today and the women that I've been seeing in the last decade is that these women's behavior challenges the traditional ideas that women should be ladylike and nurturing. They challenge the traditional role a definition for women. But this and, role, and I'm going to interrupt you, has been sure. evolving, as you say, and I think you alluded to that in, in, in the very beginning and when you began talking. It's, it's something that has evolved probably over the next, over the past, what, two, at least two decades, and it is right. a massive, so. as you describe it, social transformation. Um, right. And it has, and let's talk about the impact, because as you say, okay, women are working, or women, there are more women, I guess, in graduate school and undergraduate school than men. Than men, oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, so the implications for relationships between men and women, obviously, is, is huge, and what are, are huge. those, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, I think one of the one of the um, one of the most important changes for women is complicated for alpha women because they're, as you said, they're, these roles are in transition. So the alpha woman comes into to my my practice, for instance, um, having spent her twenties developing her independence and her career, and now she's in her early thirties and she's worried about whether she has missed the boat in getting married. She wants to get married. Most women want to get married. I think there is a a larger proportion of women who don't, but a majority of women do want to get married. And they think that maybe they have waited too long. um, And do they have to settle? They're absolutely in a panic about finding a mate in their 30s. But the most interesting thing about that is that if you look at the research, women between the ages of 30 and 45 are getting married at higher rates than any other group of women. Um, because women are delaying marriage. And for every year that well, you delay... Well, is this a certain demographics? Is this college-educated or... College-educated yeah. women, career, more, more career-oriented women. The women that are having a difficult time um, and the marriage rates are low for women who are not educated and are poor women. Those women are having a hard time finding mates um, that can uh, that they can partner with and that can support them. But the college-educated women, women who are uh, graduating from graduate school, moving into professions, uh, are finding mates well into their 30s and 40s because they're highly desirable. And are they finding no, alpha mate? You know, you talk about the alpha male. Or no, no. Are but, they are they're finding? And they would define. I guess we have defined alpha women, and it would be similar traits for alpha men. But alpha men. And then the right, I mean, beta. Uh, women the, the opposite is beta, and the beta man is actually um, a new catch because he is not the wimp of the past any more than the alpha woman is the bitch of the past. You know, um, he's the strong. Uh, the alpha, the the uh, the beta man has come into the scene because he has also adapted um, gender neutral behavior into his 
role, so he's more nurturing, more supportive. But the alpha woman really is attracted to the alpha man, and that is one of her big problems. She thinks that he is the right partner for her because he traditionally has been the man who has been most desirable, aggressive, a breadwinner. Um, But two alpha um, people, a man and a woman who are both alphas, they don't do well together. What happens? Um, Specifically, give us an example. Well, I'll give the example is that basically they struggle for power. They try to dominate each other. They um, try to um, uh, argue over whose priorities are more important. And the um, alpha-alpha pairing doesn't work out. They're actually my most difficult patients because uh, they, they're, they're, um, they're not able to compromise. They are fighting for power and control. Give us a so the specific example is, without obviously revealing who their clients are, but oh, like yeah, a couple comes oh, in, your alpha, example. alpha, uh, and they're in their, what, 30s, 40s? They're in their 30s. I have a couple now that have been married for three years. Uh, he's a lawyer in a big corporate firm in New York. She's the head of one of the startups, one of the big startups. Uh, they have actually two children, and they met, they met actually in college and then didn't see each other for 10 years and then got together when they were in their early 30s and got married. And they seem to be perfectly matched. If you looked at their credentials, you would think this is the perfectly matched couple. But the minute they get into a relationship, the minute they're in a relationship together, they fight like cats and dogs. They cannot agree on anything because each one is imposing his or her will, and the other one doesn't want to compromise. That's their nature. That's their alpha nature. They don't like to back down. So this, these relationships are really, um, you know, highly vulnerable relationships, and they are my, they, and since I have a lot of couples like that in treatment, they are actually um, my most challenging couples, um, well, and most often they don't make it. Uh, they, well, that they was my really, question. Do, is there any possibility of them making it? I imagine you're in New York City, so and right. I've been there for over thirty years. I would imagine there are lots of these alpha couples. So how do you what do you do? I mean, if you don't, I mean, what is the rate of success or failure with two alpha? Well, I think these couples are really challenged. In order for them to make a relationship work, one of them really, both of them really have to develop more accommodating personalities, which is difficult. Um, each one thinks, and I've written this out for you know in scripting and uh, you know tasks for couples um, for years and years. Each one of them has to be able to give in to the other person sometimes, and that's really hard for them. Um, they usually Do you explore the areas, for instance, that would be the easiest to let go of. I'm thinking of these two mm-hmm. alpha couples or the alpha personalities, like really get very specific about. Okay, you know, maybe you have can to. Can you give of, in on this? Yes. You know, can, can you know? But they they tend to argue over everything. Everything becomes a symbol of who's in control. And everything becomes a symbol of who's really got more power. They're very power-oriented. I mean, we're talking about high alphas now. And one of the most important things about the alpha-beta continuum is that most alphas have beta and most betas have alphas. So it's really a question of ratio. We're talking about couples who have very, very high alpha, probably in the very, very high range, and very low beta. Beta is the part of you that, you know, the part of our personalities that are more compromising, more accommodating, um, more work more um, as teammates. So these people, it, it, you know, it's very hard to 
parcel out the part of their relationship, which really doesn't cost them much to give in. I mean, that's the way I talk to them. It doesn't really cost you to give in on this point, Um, you know, where the children go to nursery school or what you're going to have for dinner or who's going to come over um, and socialize with you or who's... There are some things that, yes, there are going to be fights about, like whose work is going to be more important when you're both really um, struggling with projects. But there's so many things that they fight about and make an issue out of because it it really gets down to kind of like um, a, a matter of pride. <laughs> and they're very difficult. I mean, they really are. I think some of them stay married because, um, and they live a little bit more separately and they kind of accept each other's strength. Uh, but their relationship has an underlying tension in it. Um, like one woman said, he wants me to be Mary Poppins. I'm not Mary Poppins. This is who I am. Um, I am in charge. I like to take, you know, I like to take charge. And then he says, well, you know, I'm the man of the household. And mostly for the men, I think it's particularly difficult because they are a more traditional man than the beta man is. They haven't really evolved in the culture. Why do you think um, they were attracted to the alpha woman in the first place? Because of her credentials? Because maybe she's a high power? attorney or she comes from the right, right. Kind of family she has well, a she's lot of very money appealing absolutely she's very appealing she has the same education um you know as he does uh she looks like you know she's she's a tremendous success she's a great partner in the sense of having somebody you're very proud of and somebody who you perceive as your equal and there's also a lot of sparks between these people there's a lot of you know excitement and adventure some of the sparring has a sexual quality to it. So it becomes, you know, kind of um, an exciting relationship, but it isn't a peaceful relationship. Does it get exacerbated? Maybe I, I think I know the answer to the question, but it gets exacerbated when they have children. Because if you have just if you have the two, you know, the alpha couple, um, and they don't have children, as you say, they have, they have the, uh, the creativity, the money, the wherewithal, perhaps not to... They may have two houses, they may have two apartments, right. they may have, you know, so they have kind of a flexible... And they, ha- and they have a lot of staff, so they can, they can outsource a lot of things. I think that they don't have children, I think it becomes much easier because they can have more separation in their life. The minute you have children, as we all know, you have to cooperate. You have to come to an agreement. You have to be on the same page. You can't let your children divide and conquer. Um, you need to have the same vision of parenting. And this is where the power struggles come in. I think if they're two career-oriented people who don't have children, I think it works much, much better. Yeah. I mean, you have a really difficult task, because I am picturing this couple that you just talked about or that you just mentioned, because if you have to be the alpha per I'm taking the woman, perhaps, if she's a surgeon or she, uh, I go back to being you know, a partner in a law firm, right. it's really hard to transition from doing that and really having to take charge and make decisions to going and compromising and with your partner or your spouse. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing about alpha women. I mean, one of the things that I have helped a lot of alpha women to do is to look elsewhere for a partner besides the um, the alpha male. Uh, the alpha woman really needs a partner who is going to support her goals and is not going to be threatened by her strength. The beta man really is a guy who has a strong enough ego so that he's not threatened by the by the alpha woman. He's supportive, he's accommodating, but he's not compliant. He's assertive, but he's not confrontational. He works hard, but he's not maybe super, super ambitious. So the relationship works well for them because they can create 
in what today is the new egalitarian relationship, a more of a partnership and a team um, approach. The beta man is a, a guy who values parenting, a partnership, and he pulls his own weight. Uh, so he is really the ideal partner for the uh, very extreme alpha woman. He can be the man behind the successful woman, you know, in terms of that role reversal. And I right. think, yeah, and I think the thing you're saying is that so that uh, beta man doesn't have to be defined as a wimp, just as the alpha woman. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a bitch. Exactly. Um, yes. That's exactly right. I mean, the beta man is really a great guy, and you know, he's not a hard sell. <laughs> um, somebody said to me, "Is the beta man a hard sell because he's not an alpha man?" And I really don't think so. I think the beta man is the um, the new evolving. A masculine ideal in the sense that he has, uh, you know, he has softened some of his um, traditional male qualities to be a real partner with a woman. Um, he's just as comfortable changing a diaper as he is giving a presentation at work. He supports um, and respects, you know, respect is tremendously important in a relationship, as we all know. He respects his partner and he is willing to meet her halfway and accommodate to her goals, just as she is to him. I mean, it's not going to be a one-way relationship, but he is going to allow her to take the lead. He doesn't necessarily have to be center stage. He doesn't resent the fact that she's in the limelight. He doesn't resent the fact that, you know, she's going to have um, a big presence and a big personality in the room. He sort of enjoys her um, being a center stage. And I think, to, oh, don't I, I assume, you know, you obviously have been studying this for not just a decade, but for 30 years. Oh, for, for a long time. A long time. <laughs> a long uh, time. Yeah, I mean, the culture has to be accepting also of the beta traits, and I think that's happening as well. Because I do. Because, you know, men who take on that role now are beginning to get recognition, acceptance, mm-hmm. as I, you know, we mm-hmm. said before, they're not necessarily considered, well, they're not considered wimps. They get a lot of credit for taking care of the kids exactly. or doing those traditionally female uh, roles or gender roles. So, Right. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that, that the beta man is really a man who is changing the a definition of what it is to be a man. He is a guy who is really willing to pitch in. And the all the young people, I mean, a high proportion, a huge majority of young people are looking for an egalitarian relationship. That is what is the become the new model, and the beta man fits that role very well. So I think the culture is changing. I really think we are in a period of cultural transition so that both male and men and women are sharing gender-neutral traits. They are not masculine or feminine. They're not narrowly defined in their gender role um, assignments in, the, in terms of the culture, that those roles are expanding and men and women are showing human traits, not just masculine or feminine traits. Let's, because we don't have that much time left, well, how does that play out in the bedroom? Because that's really important when you're in your oh. 30s mm-hmm. or 20s mm-hmm. or any time when, when you're... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how does... Well, one of the, yeah. the interesting thing about the alpha woman is that she is a sexual being, very sexual being. Um, she has probably had uh, many sexual relationships in the past, um, but she is not the initiator in bed. Um, the alpha woman is ambivalent about giving full expression to her sexual appetite. She's operating on the old model that women shouldn't show their sexual being openly. She's been raised to believe that I have to be a lady in bed and out. 
and she is used to pleasing her partner. This puts her a little bit in a time warp because she is used to getting what she wants. She's used to expressing herself and initiating. But in bed, um, unfortunately in bed, she is really the opposite. She is waiting to be taken. She tends to be passive. She tends to want um, uh, uh, to be uh, ravished. So she is very much attracted to an aggressive uh, alpha male in bed. So this is the difficulty. When she is with a beta man who tends to be less aggressive in bed, but very tender, very loving, and very interested in her getting off, um, as opposed to alpha men who usually are, you know, without stereotyping them, but very often mostly interested in their own pleasure, uh, she has to adjust. And she needs to take charge in that area of her life, just like she does in other areas. She needs to talk to her partner. She needs to be able to initiate the things that she likes. She needs to introduce fantasy into her sexual behavior with her male, with her mate. And usually sex improves at that point. But at first she's disappointed. I mean, I've lived through it with so many women in my practice. They get disappointed that their beta man, whom they adore and is great to them and has tremendous respect for them, isn't this rough guy in bed. He's a gentler, more, um, you know, kind of subtle lover. And she needs to be able to get what, um, have sex the way she wants to too. So that's something she has to work on with the, um, with the beta male. So in other words, taking responsibility for your own sexual wants, right. needs, desires, and be able to express it. I mean, and not. Right. Exactly. She needs to be able to express it freely since she's used to being with alpha male and, um, and particularly in her premarital, um, you know, kind of sexual experiences, she's used to them taking over. And so it's new to her to have to really participate more fully with the beta male in bed. And um, that's, that's, that's problematic at the beginning. And, and she changes her expectations and realizes it's okay to freely express her sexuality. Um, it usually works out very well. Because most men, really, beta and alpha men, really like women who initiate. They're very pleased when women initiate. Uh, they, they're, they're dying for that. I hear that from men all the time. So she just needs to sort of define her needs sexually in bed, too. So communication, obviously, is key, mm-hmm. which brings me to another question, because we're talking about maybe specifically sex, but sex involves intimacy. And what about in, in, intimacy? Because that seems to be a problem, I think, with men. In my experience as a social worker and working with clients, uh, intimacy is a difficult very, very difficult for both men and women, whether you're right. alpha, 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 beta, right. whatever right. the combination. Right. But, you know, today's relationships are based more on companionship and friendship and partnership, and that is a different kind of intimacy. It's not just a sexual intimacy. It's really um, really liking your partner and working together that creates the intimacy for contemporary couples today, I think. Um, certainly, um, you have to communicate more fully and more openly, but the respect and, uh, that is there for the alpha beta couple or for the alpha or for, and we haven't even talked about the beta beta couple or the, um, the, uh, um, beta woman alpha male. That's a very good combination too because she is more traditionally female and the beta woman does not necessarily, um, have to be center stage. Uh, so, so these combinations work very well too. We have a quiz in the book called the, um, 
the Alpha Beta Continuum. Which I took, and, and I told you, in the before we got on the air, I took the quiz. Everyone should do it. I think it's enlightening. It's very but it, informative. Don't it you is. think it's informative? Yeah, I think so, too. And yeah. it's very easy to take because there's 100 questions there, and you just have to mark the ones that apply to you and then score it according to uh, the key at the end of the quiz. All right, so what do you do with it? I took the test, and I, I'll t- tell you what I got. I mean, I, I turned out uh, 70, 30, 70% uh, alpha, alpha, 30% beta. You said you weren't surprised. Which doesn't surprise me at yeah. all because, you know, you are where you are because you have a lot of alpha qualities. I mean, you are a strong, confident, assertive woman, and you are the, you know, the moderator on a radio show. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all. The, the, the good combination for you is that you have mid-beta qualities, uh, which offset some of the alpha qualities. So the combination of alpha and beta, even though your alpha is stronger, is a very good combination. And when you look, I don't know if you're married or not, or if you have a partner, or if you're interested in having a partner. Well, I have. But, I was married for 20 years, divorced, and that's a whole other show. And okay. then have been since my early for almost 30 years with my partner. He and I have been together for 30 years, not married, but very intimate and, and very, very intimate and very close. And very close, exactly. And if he took the test, where would you think that he would fall? I, well, that's a very good question because I was thinking about, obviously, when, before I interviewed you, um, I think now he, he's a beta person, and, and I can yeah. share this with you because I think, well, a couple years ago, there, I, you know, we had a scare, and I thought you know, that he was going to be seriously ill. He wasn't. Everything was fine. But going yeah. through that process for those few days and being concerned there was something really wrong with him, I, physically, right. I thought, this man has done so much for me behind the scenes. I mean, everything right. that I've been able to accomplish right. has to do with him. And right. no one else, perhaps, would realize that or know that. But uh, in that moment, it was like, oh, my God. In a crisis, in a you would crisis. realize that? Yeah. I mean, he sounds like he's the perfect partner for you because he's, he's obviously a strong person. He yeah. obviously respects you. He isn't threatened by your um, alpha qualities. Exactly. And you understand and accept the things that he's done for you, which, which is very important. You know, one of the things I tell couples all the time is appreciation of each other is at the heart of a good marriage. I mean, there's a lot of other things, companionship, communication, but respect and appreciation is really important. So I think that's great. My husband is also a beta. Um, uh, I'm about 65% alpha and 35% uh, 40 I think 65-45. I'm 45 beta. And my husband is exactly the opposite. We've been married for a long, long time, and his... Um, alpha beta qualities are exactly the reverse of mine. He's 65 beta and, you know, 45 alpha. So um, that's a good combination for us because he has enough uh, alpha in him to push back when I get a little bit too insistent. And yet we're very compatible. He's, um, you know, he's very supportive and I appreciate that. And I think he thinks and feels that I'm, I'm very supportive of him too. Yep. I think appreciation and respect, which is you just... What you yeah. just said is really key. We have to say goodbye. I could keep talking to you. This has been a great okay, interview. Okay, well, this was great. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
Sonia Rhodes, The Alpha Woman Meets Her Match, and you can go online, buy it at bookstores everywhere. And um, Dr. Rhodes, just give us a, a website that we can go to. Oh, the website we... is um, the Alpha Woman Book, thealphawomanbook.com, and you can go online and get all sorts of special goodies when you go online and buy the book today. Terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.